0: What's up, everybody? This is Cortland bringing you another episode of the Indie Hackers podcast. And today I'll be sitting down with Bryce Roberts, a venture capitalist and a partner at NDVC. And you might be thinking, Cortland, you run IndieHackers.com where you talk to founders about bootstrapping their businesses and about focusing on revenue from day one. So why the hell are you talking to a venture capitalist? Well, NDVC is not your average venture capital firm. In fact, they have a pretty revolutionary investment thesis that focuses on investing in companies that have a focus on profitability ingrained into their DNA from early on. And I'll let Bryce talk about it because he can explain it better than I can. But you might recognize them from their post on Hacker News, from their website, which for the longest time featured a looping video of a burning unicorn head on the homepage. So obviously, we're not talking to someone who's a very stereotypical venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. I think by the end of this conversation, you'll have a much better understanding of how the common VC narrative has become so popular and so dominant in Silicon Valley, and you'll also understand more about the trade-offs that you make when you raise venture capital, and why it makes sense in a lot of cases to go the indie hacker route and focus on revenue from day one. So I'm very excited to bring you this conversation that I had with Bryce, and I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. Before we get started, let me tell you about a group of guys that I got to know a couple of months ago. They reached out to me as fellow MIT alums, and I ended up interviewing them about one of their profitable side projects on IndieHackers.com. Dixon & Mo is a boutique digital agency. They're technical designers with a focus on business and marketing, and they specialize in helping bootstrapped founders grow their products. They're based in San Francisco, and they work with founders from all over the world, and they're big advocates of the indie hacker movement, both as participants, having made several revenue-generating projects in-house, and as design and development consultants who work with an array of founders and products. For example, they helped the founder of Wise Pops grow his revenue from ten dollars to $50,000 a month and quit his job at Amazon to go full-time on a side project. They helped Alex from Groove HQ, who, by the way, has David Hauser as his loan investor, to reposition his help desk software from a scrappy app for startups to a professional tool used by companies big and small. He's now making $500,000 a month. Dixon and Mo are looking to take on two new projects this year and would love to see where they can help. You can chat with them over email or phone about any design, development, or marketing problem that you're struggling with. Reach out to Mo, that's M O E, at Mo at dixonandmoe.com. That's D-I-X-O-N and moe.com. And make sure to tell them that Cortland from Hacker sent you. Hi everybody, this is Cortland Allen from ND Hackers, and I'm sitting down today with Bryce Roberts from NDVC. How are you doing, Bryce? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking, and thanks for having me on the on the podcast. It's really good to actually be able to talk to you again because we first met. Back in October, I went down to your office in San Francisco and we talked for about an hour just about investing, adventure capital, bootstrapping companies, indie hackers. And it's cool to be able to do it on the air now and talk about some of the same things we talked about then.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, we've been a huge fan of what you're trying to do with indie hackers from the get go. I think, you know, as soon as you launched, it was on our radar and we've just been... The content you're putting out, the conversations you're having, the stories you're telling—we just think it's fantastic. So we're happy to. I was glad we got a chance to meet and just you know free free flow for an hour or so. It was. Uh, I still remember it was a great conversation.
0: Yeah, and I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing at NDVC too. I think I first read about it on Hacker News about two years ago when you guys launched, and it was kind of like this cryptic, mysterious launch. But um,
1: in fact, it was. Two years ago this month, it was January one, two thousand fifteen.
0: It's exactly two years ago. Wow!
1: And it was wild because I was flipping through my time hop, and I remember, uh, you know, this year the screenshot of when we'd been. I mean, we stayed at the top of Hacker News for two days, and so I just kept kind of tripping out on that, and I took a screenshot of, it and it popped up this year on my time hop. So it was. It's cool to see one the reaction we had, and then just give you some time to reflect on how far we've come.
0: You know, since that super cryptic little uh, landing page. Yeah, it's 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 really awesome, and I I plan to talk about a lot of that stuff, like the changes you guys have experienced in the last two years, and and Hacker News. It's crazy how much traffic Hacker News drives because when ND Hackers launched, I was also at the top of HN for two days. But for people who who may not have read that post or who may not know about NDVC, can you talk about what NDVC is?
1: NDVC is a investment thesis we have uh, developed over the years through our investment firm, which is a firm called O'Reilly Alpha Tech Ventures, OATV, is a fund that I started uh, with Tim O'Reilly and my other partner, Mark Jacobson. We started OATV back in 2005 when there was no real category of seed investing. We kind of saw this potential opportunity where costs for starting and scaling businesses were dropping, and yet the check size of VC firms kind of stayed pretty consistent. And so we thought there would be an opportunity for our companies to get further on less. And so that's kind of where we started with our business, at least. Investing probably five years into that, you know, the promise initially of seed investing was that it was going to be not just this kind of arbitrage of picking these companies early on and kind of bridging them to higher valuations and more rounds of financing to kind of get them onto that venture track. The idea with seed early on was that it was this, it was effectively a new model for venture scale returns in a market that could potentially see those on smaller outcomes and you know, different types of companies and entrepreneurs. So historically, VCs have made all of their money in the industry as a whole has made all their money off about 12 companies a year that reach a billion dollar valuation or more and exit. You know, we thought with seed investing that there would be this opportunity to kind of create a shadow market or a different type of market for early stage investing where entrepreneurs and investors could be much more aligned about the kinds of exits we could each have that really moved our needle. And five years in to this kind of seed boom, we were really starting to feel the pull of what had become really kind of an arbitrage business, that seed investing wasn't necessarily introducing optionality. It was really kind of bridging the gap to more funding rounds and and kind of getting people gussied up and prepared for raising another round of funding versus just building a business. And so within DVC, that opportunity that we saw was still there to help entrepreneurs kind of build long-term, sustainable, real businesses that didn't necessarily require massive amounts of venture capital. And with that, all that comes along with those funding rounds, right, which tends to be more loss of control, more dilution, more oversight, and frankly, more expectation around the kind of exit that's required in order to be successful for the investors. So, you know, back in 2015, we had this idea that we wanted to test out, which was, you know, what if we created an investment vehicle that just backed companies who wanted to raise one round of funding and then just build their business and give those founders the control over how they grew, where they grew, but give them that same layer of support without necessarily expectation that they're going to raise that next round in the next 12 to 18 months, which is, you know, kind of that implicit A round that goes along with a seed round these days. That's what we started with in 2015 that landing page you mentioned that was on Hacker News, and the response to that was pretty immediate and pretty vocal. And as a result, over those two years, the idea and the terms and the layer of services we provide and the community that's coming together around it, we've just continued to kind of iterate on that uh, over the last two years. And the results have been really encouraging, both from the companies we've funded, but also just the response we're getting from entrepreneurs all over the world excited about this idea of kind of building their company on their terms versus having to fit a
0: certain mold. Yeah, there's certainly... Like a VC mold that that exists, and I noticed it a lot when I first moved to Silicon Valley uh, five or six years ago. About, I mean, I did Y Combinator, and there's kind of this ethos among my batchmates, among other people I talked to in in the tech world that, like, you know, if you weren't going for this billion-dollar unicorn company, then you were just starting a nice lifestyle business, and that was cute, you know. And and you're never really going to be anything, but you know, kudos to you. And it's crazy to me how everyone's kind of on this one page, and it's the only way almost.
1: It is the VC business model co-opting the entrepreneur's vision for what it is they're trying to build. And I think in the race to get that validation and support financially or otherwise from VCs, entrepreneurs really have to sell this massive vision because it's only those companies that are billion dollars that really drive returns for the industry as a whole. And so you really have to shoehorn your business into it. And I think that it forces entrepreneurs to do and be something that maybe they aren't. And so, like you said, you had this kind of visceral reaction to these entrepreneurs and how that mentality and mindset and culture really changed how they thought about their business. We think, especially in this day and age, with the cost of starting and scaling businesses only going lower, that the funding round sizes keep increasing. And I don't necessarily think that's coming out of need. It's coming out of something else. And we don't think it's necessarily ambition or anything else. It's just The way that this business is is really engineered and and we're trying to give entrepreneurs a bit more control over how they do it and and how they measure success because for most entrepreneurs who don't go and raise a a ton of money and create all these expectations, a $100 million business is still a fantastic outcome for them. It's it's a rounding error to most VCs. Most of the massive billion-dollar businesses that are out there, they didn't start out saying that's what they were going to be. They didn't plant a stake in the ground early on. If you go back and you look at, you know, Uber's, um, you know, early idea for what it was going to be, or Facebook, or you know, Google or any of these things, right? They didn't set out for world domination. They started small and they kind of let that ambition grow over time. And I think so many entrepreneurs are handicapping themselves right now by saying we we have to be this or we don't matter, right? Like, you know, there's just this belief that there's these completely binary outcomes, right? That it has to be Google or it has, or why bother, right? And and, like, I think that's just a shame because I think if you go back and you interviewed, you know, any of those founders of those, the massive near monopolistic companies we have these days, if you would have interviewed them in the first year or two, they weren't even sure they had a real company. If what they were doing was actually feasible, certainly not at at, uh, some predefined scale. And so I think kind of removing that expectation or at least recalibrating that from the beginning, hopefully it gives entrepreneurs an opportunity to start, to get going, to be supported and then let that ambition grow over time and see
0: where it takes them, versus force feeding that that unicorn right out of the gate. It's it's nuts because you can go back and like you were mentioning, you can read about you know the Google founders agonizing over whether or not to sell their company for like a few million dollars, and or a million dollars, and and now you have people going into like seed investors talking about how they're going to be a ten billion dollar company in five years, and there's just so much pressure on, on people to spin that narrative and to raise more money, and investors are expecting to be kind of like a, a stepping stone. Okay, you'll raise money from me and then you'll use that to move your product, you know, to this stage, at which point you'll raise more and more money, and it's this treadmill that's not necessarily the only way. And I think a lot of people have misunderstood kind of your purpose and your methods in NDVC. I was reading the old hacker news threads and some of the earlier coverage you got from um, Pando Daily back in 2015. And there are a lot of people who thought, okay, well, NDVC really doesn't care about ambitious companies. They just want to fund like these nice tiny companies with no ambition. And that's not really what your goal is, right? Like as you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of companies that had amazing success and that ended up bootstrapping or raising, you know, not that much funding and, and making hundreds of millions, if not billions. So what is your philosophy and what is what does success look like for you?
1: Our philosophy is pretty straightforward, and that is, you know, we think companies that begin with the DNA of you know from the very get-go, that they're really focused on Designing, developing, and delivering a product to customers, the customers pay for, that they know how to drive revenue and create revenue from the get-go. You know, our our, our fundamental belief is those over the long term are going to be much better businesses than the companies who spend their time focusing on raising and spending other people's money. And so that's a philosophy, it's a it's a worldview, but we also think that proves out in a bunch of cases. You know, people love to point out how much revenue. Facebook, you know or how much money they raised in the early days and over the life of the company. But the reality was, Facebook from the get-go was a very profitable business. You know, counter Facebook with Twitter, who has been losing money from day one and continues to lose money now, and yet, you know, they just can't get their act together around revenue, despite it growing like crazy. They looked at revenue as kind of a bolt-on feature. You know, we can turn on revenue uh, when we need to. We think that companies who focus on revenue, we think that that DNA can't be duplicated, and that if you have that at your core from the very beginning, that over the long term, those companies can outperform. And I think we're in a window right now that really celebrates and emphasizes raising money and at what valuations and how much of it. And we think that those companies over the long term won't perform as well as the companies who focus on revenue right up front, get that as part of their culture and DNA, and then scale accordingly. So that's that's the philosophy. It has nothing to do with people's ambition or what it is they think they want to build over the long term. You know, we think, again, that those ambitions grow over time. And I think if you talk to any of the NDVC founders that uh, we work with, I think all of them consider themselves prospects for building, you know, massive massive businesses, all of them want to build something big and impactful, they're all ambitious. So they don't talk about their businesses, lifestyle businesses. I don't think we'd want to be in business with someone, you know, who doesn't really want to accelerate their growth in a, in a meaningful way. I think there are plenty of companies out there that are great companies that don't make good investments. Uh, So we're trying to find that intersection of, you know, a great real business intersecting with, you know, a great investment. And I think a lot of that's tied to the vision and ambition of the founder. And we just don't measure that in how much money they're raising.
0: And I I like what you said about kind of the effects that the current VC narrative has on on how people run their businesses, because it's not just a superficial thing. It seeps into the everyday culture of, of your business. You mentioned the culture of a loss of control, having more expectations and more oversight, a little bit of loss of independence versus uh, a company that maybe raises one round of funding or is bootstrapped and they have more of a focus on cash flow from day one and on sustainability. What other disadvantages do you see among companies that are funded by VCs that the companies in your portfolio might not have and might not be hindered by?
1: That's a good question. I mean, you know, I think it's it's probably less disadvantages, but the thing we hear you know, consistently from our founders and the bootstrap founders we work with is they have this overwhelming sense of freedom that, you know, they really aren't beholden to anybody, that they can build their company on their terms, that there's no playbook or archetype that they have to fit into. And I think there's a lot of freedom and flexibility that comes from that. I think companies as a canvas to express your values, to express who you are, I think we lose a lot of that in a world that values kind of conformity to a relatively narrow set of business metrics that Silicon Valley really embraces and encourages. You know, it certainly comes with trade-offs, right? I mean, I, I think the the thing we're recognizing is that, you know, it's kind of like what pain do you want to feel, right? You know, there is it is more painful at the beginning to get a business up and running and cash flow it start to break it even, start to become profitable, start to grow along those lines. But the reality is it's just as hard, if not harder, to try to wean yourself off of spending other people's money, losing money when you've got all of this overhead of employees and boards of directors and all of these expectations. It's just as hard, if not harder, to try to create a real company from that platform versus starting... Um, from the outset, with that as the goal, we're trying to encourage and work with the company. Look, you know, we think that venture model it does work. It, it works for you know a handful of companies every year, and we think that that is as reasonable a route as any other. You know, if you look at the companies that actually succeed, right? I mean, if you look back at Aileen Lee's uh, unicorn analysis, the initial one, right? It was 0.01 percent of company, or 0.07 percent not even a full 10th of a point of companies that drive all of the returns for the venture business. It's just tiny. It's just such a, it's just such a tiny sliver of the universe of potential companies. You know, I wrote a post a while ago about whether we're reaching the ends of this, you know, the kind of limits of the Silicon Valley venture model, because long before I came into the business and currently the worldview is there's these kind of 12 to 15 companies a year that drive all of the returns for the business. And so if that playbook, if that model works for 12 to 15 companies a year, what happens if we could develop a different playbook? Maybe we could create one more of those a year. And if you could be the firm that was the primary investor in another one of those, or you could be an instigator for bringing more of those companies um, to creation or being a part of those, like that's a, potentially a very good business to be in. So that's that's how we look at it is we recognize, look, the, the, the model works, and it works for a set number of folks. And there's, candidly, there's a, you know, a certain archetype of entrepreneur that's embraced by that model, right? What happens to, you know, all those other companies that could succeed if they had a little bit of access, a little bit of cash, a little bit more network? You know, we think there's a real opportunity to bring companies and support companies, you know, that wouldn't have had it otherwise, but they could scale up, Hugely. I mean, if you look at our first group of of companies that we did um, back in 2005, the company that has grown insanely fast and faster than anybody else in the group. I mean, we're talking, you know, 10, 20 X growth over the last year. It's a black female founder. She comes from a super rough background. You know, she would never have gotten the attention or support of VCs. But she, she's got more cash sitting in her bank account now after we put $100,000 in as part of our initial NDVC investment. One, she never spent it. And two, she's got what equates to a larger than average seed round sitting in her bank account now because of the cash she's been able to generate over the last year and a half. You know, She would have never caught the attention of VCs. And now, because of the rate she's growing, because of the attention she's been able to get you know, she has them knocking on her door and she's just so committed to doing it her way that she's able to kind of confidently turn away that type of investor interest because, you know, she's standing on her own two feet. We think that's not only really empowering, but it's also, we think it's a harbinger of entrepreneurs who don't fit that prototype, don't fit that archetype, but that who have something massive to offer and who just need a little bit of help or support. And we want to be able to provide that for them. But we don't want to feed them back into the machine that is looking for something they're not, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I remember reading one of your early posts about a month after you launched and, and you guys hosted these these meetups or these events in different cities. And people were kind of coming to you. And despite reading the explanation of NDVC, they're coming and they wanted to use you as a stepping stone to, to raising more and more money. And it seems to clash with what your your philosophy was,
1: and that was hard because it's like, how do you you know, how do you just not end up with a bunch of
0: VC rejects, right?
1: People who t- right. who really want to keep raising money, but they can't, and so they're just looking for kind of that next step up to get them closer to being able to raise a proper A round or whatever it is. And and those aren't the companies we're interested in working with. And so we you know we've gotten better at finding and filtering out those companies versus the kinds of
0: companies who genuinely want to do it on their own terms. What's been interesting to me running indie hackers is is people will ask me, you know, do you hate venture capitalists? Do you hate raising raising money? And I don't, right? And there's a time and a place for that. And it's not for everybody all the time. And yet there's this narrative that it's kind of the only path. And it's fascinating to me how dominant and popular this narrative was. I remember going to uh, Y Combinator Startup School in 2009. And it was like, interestingly enough, like my first exposure to like the alternative way of looking at things, because Jason Fried from Basecamp was one of the speakers, and he got up there and I don't remember exactly what he said, but more or less like trashed what a lot of the other speakers were saying and said like, hey, everyone's feeding you this idea, this is the only path that you could possibly take, but there's other options, right? You can charge money, like every other business in the history of the world has done, and you browse TechCrunch and you see only one type of business, one type of story. Uh, Why is the VC narrative so dominant and why haven't, you know, the kind of companies and business models that we've seen for, let's say, brick and mortar businesses uh, taken hold sooner in Silicon Valley? You
1: know, you bring up a couple really interesting points. I mean, I I think why is that the case? Because, you know, big check sizes and valuations and, and those magazine covers are all really sexy. And it's very rare that you get that without something artificial. People in general want, you know, it's kind of like, why is the the self-help world so big? Why is the, you know, why is the dieting industry so big? It's like people just want a pill that you take and that, you know, that's what helps you be successful. And in many respects, you know, getting a big check from investors looks like, you know, looks like that. I think that's part of the culture, though. I mean, you know, venture capital got started in Silicon Valley, in a, you know, in a meaningful way, I think it's just so ingrained that people take it for granted that that's the only way to do it. And I think that's really what we celebrate. I mean, you know, that's that's really what catches the headlines. And I think that's what frustrates is you probably are finding as you interview the indie hackers is like, it's frustrating to see yourselves creating something valuable that you have customers paying for that, you know, is working, you get a venture funded competitor who gets the headline for, you know, a press release around their funding round and you just shake your head, right? Like that's, yeah. a, that's a pretty common refrain we hear a lot from folks. It's like, why are they getting all the attention? Well, there are some things you can solve with money and there are some things you can't, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think, you know, in, in, in so many of these cases, you know, the best competitive advantage is not going out of business, right? And so if you don't have to ask permission from an investor to stay in business, there's a much higher likelihood that you'll be around long after that press release is old
0: news, right? Exactly. And it's it's funny to me because in a way, the fact that the tech press will only really tend to focus on one type of story is what makes my website possible. Because I, I would browse Hacker News and see all these business stories from people who are making real amounts of money. So I'm doing millions of revenue a year and they couldn't get any press, right? And so I created any hackers to feature these stories and people who are interested in them can come to any hackers and read about them. But it's almost impossible for them to get press anywhere, and Indie Hackers itself has gotten zero press from from any of the tech businesses, despite hundreds of thousands of developers from Silicon Valley visiting the website um, every month. So it's
1: you know Jason, you know the Jason Fried at, at at Startup School, right? I mean he he makes more every year in cash distributions out of his business than most founders will ever make out of a VC funded startup. I mean, you know it, that company just mints money. Even more importantly, it really creates this amazing platform for Jason and DHH and the people who work with them to express worldviews, to highlight cultural differences, to experiment on company culture in ways that you could never get away with at a venture funded startup. I was talking to a friend recently who bootstrapped his business to about 75, 80 million a year in revenue. And he was telling me about all the decisions they'd made, these kind of counterintuitive bets they'd made, you know, throughout the years. And as he's walking me through this stuff, I'm just shaking my head and I'm thinking, man, if I were on your board as a VC, I would literally have to veto every single one of these (laughs) ideas. That you're talking about, and yet these are the things that that really made their business work. These are the things you know that really built their company and culture, and that their customers loved. And yet it was stuff that, from if you had to get that by a board of directors, like there's no way, there's no way it's
0: happening. That's so nuts.
1: Yeah, I think Jason's point, I think your point, and Jason's point is a good one, which is like, unfortunately, the the challenge and opportunity for indie hackers and for indie VC and you know the people who are really trying to get these stories out there is that the knowledge transfer that happens so frequently and so clearly in the venture world is actually not very applicable to a lot of these types of businesses. In fact, most of them, if they took the advice they're reading on TechCrunch or most of the blogs that are out there, they'd be out of business.
0: Yeah, I I talk to people on the Indie Hackers forum all the time, and there's a guy on there uh, a week or two ago. I'm not sure exactly what it was. He was kind of frustrated and he was saying, you know, aren't I supposed to solve this huge, you know, unsolved problem that no one else has ever solved? And I was like, that's not what you need to do, you know. And that's – he got that by taking advice directly from VCs who wanted him to build a billion-dollar company and anything else was just not worth it.
1: Well, that's where we kind of had to cordon off, you know, NDVC from the other types of investing we do because we realized, like – there's something really special and different about that, that the other companies could benefit from, but that focus on revenue customers, it doesn't necessarily, like those two worlds don't necessarily mesh very well. And so, you know, as we did in EVC as a kind of experiment within one of our funds, one of the big realizations we had was that it, it couldn't really co It really needed its own space these entrepreneurs just need a very different kind of support and community. I mean, one of our core beliefs around IndieVC is you become who you hang around. You know, if you're hanging around entrepreneurs who are consistently on that VC-funded treadmill, the advice you tend to get is really engineered towards what it's going to take you to get that next round. We did a retreat in Chicago um, a month or so ago. Uh, We actually did it at Basecamp. Jason uh, gave us some space there and the Cards Against Humanity folks there who were also bootstrapped gave us some space. But the takeaway from our entrepreneurs who came there was like they couldn't believe that we didn't spend any time talking about fundraising. We didn't spend any time polishing pitch decks. It was all focused on what was happening with revenue, what was happening with customers. All of it was revolving around growth, revenue, sustainability, not across all of these retreats we've done at NDVC, we've never once done a workshop on how to pitch investors. You know, that's just so different from the traditional world of venture and seed investing that I came from, that, you know, with, with our newest fund that we raised, we raised it almost entirely with the story of NDVC uh, at the front. And so all of the investing we'll be doing going forward will be, uh, you know, in, that, in the spirit of NDVC. That's huge. It is huge. It was a it was a big, scary change to our business after you know over a decade of doing kind of mainstream seed investing.
0: And you're hitting on like almost all the questions that I wanted to ask because one of the biggest things that that I noticed going through by Combinator and, and talking to friends who raised VC after that is that so much of the coaching and the help that you get is literally just how do you raise more money? Right? Here's how to pitch. Here's how to edit your slide deck. And it's like. Fifty percent how do you run your business, fifty percent how do you raise more money? Because that's just such a huge part of it. Whereas the people that I'm talking to with the hackers, like no one's asking each other for tips on how to raise money. They're asking like how do I get customers? You know, how do I handle the sales process and how do I build a product or a service that's useful for people and can grow?
1: Well, there were a few like touchstone moments for me. I mean, NDVC, even though we posted it two years ago, it, it was something that was probably five years in my head. And if you go back, you'll find like an old talk I did in Berlin probably four years ago or five years ago. Like it's been kind of coming out and it's been a topic of conversation uh, within my partnership and, you know, with my advisors for probably five to seven years. And, you know, there's these kind of touchstones along the way where like, you know, I remember one of our companies that we're um, investors in had closed a, they just closed like a double digit, round of funding, um, you know, significant, like, you know, huge round of funding, the very first board meeting after this round of funding, there was a large portion of that board meeting that was spent around what fundable milestones do we need to hit to get the next round? And who should we start talking to right now to start kind of getting the company prepared to raise again, this is a company who literally raised money, enough money to, to probably be in business 10 years, but the expectation was just so immediate. And I, you know, that they would be raising again within the next three to six months because they were hot and they could and all this other stuff, you know, and that, and that, that, would give us all kind of a nice bump in our IRR. I was like, it was that moment where I'm just stepping back and thinking like, this is not, this is not the kind of business I want to be in. And these aren't necessarily the kinds of businesses I want to work with. And like you said, it's not, that you dislike VC, you know, we get the, you know, we get the, your anti, you know, we get the anti VC thing all the time, when in reality, we are still VCs, we still have the potential of VC style outcomes. Um, But we think that playbook, it really is best reserved for, you know, only a handful of companies that are willing to play by those same rules, and that most other people are going to be better suited finding a partner that will be happy with an outcome that they'll be happy with. And that's not necessarily saying to be less ambitious,
0: that's saying like, don't force yourself into somebody else's model too early. Exactly, and I think a lot of times people force themselves into these models blind. Like they aren't aware of the trade-offs they're making, and they're not aware of the other options that they even have.
1: You're right, I mean, I think you know if, if entrepreneurs will be really real with you from the outset, like what they really want in a seed round or even a series A is an ability to pay their salary. Right, right. Like You want to take a little bit of pain and risk out of the equation. And instead, what you end up with is a boss, right? And so instead of starting a business to be your own boss and chart your own course, you've taken on a boss from the get-go. You've taken on all these expectations. You know, you've taken on this notion of kind of the implicit A that after you raise your seed round, you're going to need to raise again in the next 12 to 18 months so that everybody gets their nice IRR bump. Most people just don't think that long term. They just know that, you know, they they either don't have the savings to be able to do it or they just want that kind of early validation from someone who believes in them. And instead, they kind of end up biting off more than they chew or, you know, a different bite than they thought they were going to get.
0: Right. And I, I talked to so many people in indie hackers who were in situations where it's, it's like you described, like I might talk to a developer who is a brilliant developer and has a great business that he's working on and he's working on it like literally on the side of his full-time job and he or she might go home from work could on the weekends and at night and then come back and it's like all that person wants is enough money to be able to quit like safely quit their job and work on what they're doing right and they don't necessarily need some a seed round or, or series a or anything like that but I'm curious about, because you guys have completely switched, or maybe not completely switched, but you guys have shifted a lot of focus to NDVC, which is this new investment thesis. And I'm curious what you think the future of Silicon Valley is, the future of bootstrapping or the future of companies that aren't raising these successive you know, VC round after VC round after VC round. From my interviews, I've seen this common theme of of people kind of going into niches. So in the real world you might have a restaurant that serves a local community, which is hard to do on the web obviously because it has a global scale and anybody can use what you build. But people are targeting ever smaller niches, which is kind of similar. For example, I've seen analytics for Stripe accounts, analytics for Intercom, analytics for nonprofits, and these are all profitable companies. I've interviewed people doing productivity tools, right? And there's of course there's Asana and Basecamp and Trello and hundreds of businesses in the productivity space because it's not this one big winner-take-all market. Do you think that this is something that we're going to see more and more developers and founders shift into doing?
1: I, I think it all comes out in the wash. You know, I, I wrote a post a while ago um, that I called the peace dividend of the seed surge, which you know basically co-opted the idea of Chris Anderson's notion that all of the kind of explosion in new consumer electronics we're seeing is the peace dividend of the cell phone wars. But effectively, that there was—you know—there is this wave of founders who seven x seven times more founders have raised a million dollars or more over the last ten years than at any other point in history. I do believe that there are just more entrepreneurs who are educated, who've been experienced, who've who've kind of seen both sides of the fence, if you will. Like they've gone and raised venture, they've built—you know—now they're they don't want to do that again, or they're going to go into it more cautiously the next time around. I do think that, you know, people are just going to be getting smarter about how and where they apply venture capital to a problem versus using it as kind of the universal duct tape of startup solutions. Mm -hmm. I do think that people will see themselves going deeper into niches because, as you can probably appreciate, Mm -hmm. the bigger the web gets, the more mobile devices get into people's hands, the bigger these historical niches end up becoming, right? Right. you know, I do think there's going to be a lot of things we're going to be surprised by that felt really small uh, that all of a sudden see, you know, kind of massive, massive audiences. That's not new. I just think we're going to start to see it in new and different ways than we've been seeing it in the past. I mean, I think most of the big hits we've seen over the years have come at it from a very small, nichey approach, and that ends up being what works really well for them. It lets them get entrenched and create some competitive barriers. I think we're going to
0: see that more, but in very unique and and different ways. Yeah, I like what you said about the niches getting bigger as as more and more people get onto the web, because I've interviewed so many people who are like, the niche that they're targeting 10, 15, 20 years ago definitely didn't exist online, and now it's big enough for them to be making multiple tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars a month just from targeting this niche, and they're just getting started. So it's really interesting to me to see, you know, what kinds of businesses people can build by by focusing kind of narrow at first. And like you were saying earlier, focusing narrow at first doesn't mean that you can't become a billion dollar business. If that's ultimately something that you want to do or something that you kind of fall into. Right.
1: Right. You know, what we really want to encourage, what we want to see people doing is like, I think that the Silicon Valley culture right now says if it's not a billion dollar idea, it's not worth doing. And so there's a lot of people who are sitting on the sidelines not shipping because it's not a billion-dollar thing, right? Or because they can't, they don't think they can raise money for it or something like that. I think we just want to see people building things. We want to see people shipping things and then let scale figure itself out. The realities of running a billion-dollar business is that they are not for most people. Like most people really just want to have an extra – 10 grand a month or a year or whatever, right? Like they want to supplement an income or they want to be able to work full time on something that's theirs. Like, you know, and that's, that's okay. Or, or want to have, you know, a company where it's just their friends they get to work with. I mean, there's a lot of reasons people start and scale businesses that don't have anything
0: to do with binary outcomes. Exactly. I want to talk a little bit about your investment model because I think the way in which an investor puts money into a business and the, and the terms that they ask for and the instrument that they use play such a huge role in shaping the founder's motivations, right? Like what they do to run their business, what they're why they're trying to reach profitability or raise the next round, et cetera. So, can you tell us about how the NDVC investment model works and how it's changed over the past couple of years? Yeah. So, you know, the idea
1: with NDVC was that we wanted to create an instrument that didn't anticipate any future funding. And so if you never raise any more funding, if you you know if you take an investment from NDVC, the expectation is that you don't raise any more money and that you know we can get paid out in distributions over time. So rather than having you know forcing you to sell or raise another round of money to get our markup and valuation, if you want to just grow your business on revenue we want to be aligned with you in that way. And so as, as the business grows and as you take more money out of the business through your salary, then we are able to take a percentage of that out as a distribution, a cash distribution to us. And rather than kind of be this perpetual thing where we become an albatross around an entrepreneur's neck where they have to pay us out in perpetuity, you know, we try to cap our return at something that feels reasonable. So right now that's at a 5x on our distributions now the way our instruments also set up is that if you do raise money we'll convert in as a part of that round at a predefined percentage that we work out you know with the entrepreneur or if you sell the business then we convert into uh, common shares at a predefined uh, percentage as well and go through as part of that transaction on the cap table
0: i mean to me that sounds super attractive right the idea that i could i could take investment and get money that helps me fuel growth without having the the pressure of raising money again and knowing that I could pay it out in a dividend that doesn't kick in until I start paying myself a certain amount is awesome. And I'm sure a lot of people listening right now who are ND hackers are probably strongly considering applying uh, to NDVC right about now.
1: You know, at every possible turn, we're trying to give more control over it to the entrepreneur. We as investors are going to be best served if an entrepreneur is able to operate on their own terms. And so we want to be there as a support, as an advisor, as a mentor, as a network and connector. But we don't want to be your boss. You know, we don't want to sit on your board of directors. We don't want a different class of shares. We don't want, want any unnatural control over your business. And we want to give you the flexibility to grow it as you want. And hopefully, you know, our terms are structured in such a way that we're aligned with you in doing that.
0: Perfect. And to close out, I'd really love to talk about just kind of your portfolio companies. And this is just continuing with the theme of listeners wanting to apply to NDVC. In uh, version one of NDVC, as you call it, you had eight companies. And in version two, you're looking for between 15 and 20. Uh, where do these companies come from? And what do they look like? What, what are you looking for in companies that apply? So where do
1: they come from? Is they come from all over the U.S. so far. We haven't made any uh, international investments at this point. But, you know, our geographic footprint is all over the country, right? So we've got New York, we've got Chicago, we've got Atlanta, we've got Austin, we have a couple in the Bay Area, L.A., Pittsburgh. One of our underlying philosophies is that people should bloom where they're planted, right? That there's an opportunity in a bunch of different geographies that have unique reasons for people to be there whether it's lifestyle access to talent whatever it is you know we're not making people pick up and move across the country to get closer to us what we want to try to do is bring our networks and resources to them wherever they might be again so they can bloom where they're planted the first group of companies it was kind of all over the map in terms of the profile we we were figuring out kind of what the sweet spot is for companies to get the most out of this kind of support network. You know, we had everything from like standing start ideas to side projects to companies that had been in business for a couple of years doing hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue. I think where we we kind of came out after that first group was the companies who tended to do best were not the ones um, who were just getting started. So companies who had some amount of revenue coming in every month, even if it was nominal, like 10K a month you know, it's pretty clear that the companies who passed a certain threshold of revenue were the ones who were really, really getting the most out of uh, not only our investment, but also our investment of time and resources and networks and all that stuff. And so, you know, as we look for things, we're looking for things with 10K plus a month in revenue. We're looking for tech and tech-enabled types of companies where, you know, our – you know our networks are coming from the technology uh, world and so you know they're best served and i think our companies are best served who can benefit from access to those types of relationships and then you know it's it's people who are looking for you know 100k to up to 500k not people who are looking for multiple millions of dollars in investment or looking for a more traditional series a round or something like that we're also very open to new archetypes of founders like i mentioned in the first Group, you know, the company that's just far and away growing faster than anybody else is a black female founder, you know, who's just really taken our involvement to heart and has just grown leaps and bounds. Our first group of companies, um, uh, we, we did eight companies, and of those, six of the eight were female led companies. And we think that particularly. Those um, non-traditional founders—the ones that maybe didn't go to Stanford, the, one, the ones who aren't at GSB, the ones who aren't Googlers and Facebookers, and all of that stuff—like people who come from less conventional backgrounds, we think NEVC serves really well. Um, particularly since you know we're going to focus on their business and not kind of gussying them up and getting them ready to raise the next round of funding
0: when they don't look like you know what Sanho Road funds. Right. If that makes sense. Right it makes a lot of sense that's awesome i didn't I had no idea that you had so many female founders which is it's funny enough it's something that i've like struggled with in indie hackers i'm trying to find more female founders and founders from more non-traditional backgrounds to to interview and it's hard so that's it's super impressive what you've done at ndvc
1: i mean we really had no idea we didn't set out with that as an objective initially but the response from female entrepreneurs the response from underrepresented Minorities, it was just so loud uh, that we couldn't really ignore it. I mean, these were people who clearly had been overlooked and don't necessarily fit into the traditional kind of venture system as it works today. But man, given a little bit of resources, a little bit of belief, a little bit of support, like it's been amazing to watch some of these entrepreneurs and how quickly they've been able to progress with a little
0: bit of cash and a a lot of belief from us and and our networks. That's that's awesome. And I hope you guys continue to grow and and find more companies. Are you finding that a lot more people are applying in in V2 than than we're in V1? Yeah.
1: No, we've we've definitely seen a pretty healthy, steady state. The one thing we had going for us in V1 was that we had a deadline. And so now we have it kind of open-ended. And so there's a consistent cadence of entrepreneurs who apply every week, which is great. But there was, it was it's definitely a different cadence than we had when we said, hey, you have to be submitted by March, whatever it was. That was truly like a mad dash. Yeah, exactly. For entrepreneurs. So no forcing function. I think it also is giving us a higher quality. I mean, I think a lot of people just kind of threw their hat in and around. I think now we've, you know, hopefully we're getting better at telling our story and being more explicit about what it is we're looking for. And so you know the the caliber
0: and quality of companies is certainly going up you know as we tell more of our story one of the fears that i had when i first started indie hackers was that i wouldn't be able to find enough people to interview who were doing you know the non traditional let's try making money from day 1 type thing and this is obviously more a testament to the fact that indie hackers is pretty new rather than a testament to like you know this becoming more and more popular but in the beginning i was getting you know one or two submissions a week and now i'm getting 15 20 people submitting interviews every week and it, it's only been growing so That is awesome. I think
1: that's a harbinger, right? I mean, I think that's more signal that there are a group of entrepreneurs who really want to do it differently. And I think, you know, you telling their stories is a huge, huge boon to any of those folks who want to get their message out and want to feel like they're a part of a community.
0: So can you tell listeners where to go to find you uh, and learn more about you and NDVC on the web?
1: You can always go look at our burning unicorn on indie.vc. That's the URL for NDVC. You'll find out everything there is to know about us for the most part there, and it links out to a bunch of the things we've been writing. If you want to get in touch, I'm Bryce, B-R-Y-C-E, at OATV.com. I write infrequently, but I try to at least be consistently infrequent um, on uh, Bryce.VC. I'm at Bryce on Twitter, and NDVC has a pretty active Twitter account as well, at at NDVC. Awesome. Thanks so
0: much for coming on the show, Bryce. Happy to do it. Anytime. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation and you've got questions for Bryce or for me, head over to the ND Hackers forum where we'll be discussing this episode. That's www.ndhackers.com forum. Thanks, and I'll see you guys next time.